Once again, from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray again. Father, we do not tread lightly here in your presence gathered with the saints and the angels. We do not tread lightly here at your word, but we come with reverence and awe, excitement, joy, conviction, and we ask God lovingly and humbly and confidently For you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to teach and instruct us. Holy Spirit, we implore you to raise dead men to life this morning. To give life, to breathe life in Jesus' name. To those who have not yet trusted in the finished work of Christ as we work through this incredible passage. Help us all to grow and learn And empower us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So, and... Who starts a sentence with and? Paul, great day. Oh, Peter, sorry. I'm so used to preaching Paul. That's that's what's going on. This is Peter, not Paul. But and means that this is a continuation of the previous thought, which we looked at last week. So let's read that, and, and we'll just read it, but let's read it in conjunction with this first verse. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, with that in mind, and looking at verse 17 again, after detailing God's great work of salvation in verses 3 to 12, Peter is calling his brothers and sisters scattered throughout Asia Minor to action, to do in response to what God has done in and through them. 
since he has saved them, since God has saved them, this is what they should do. Since God has so magnificently saved you in the past, set your hope fully on future grace, the future grace that Jesus will bring with him when he comes again in all of his glory. And he will, praise God. Gird up your minds for strenuous thinking, we talked about last week. Be sober-minded and don't do what you used to do, but rather, since your God is holy, you be holy too in all of your conduct. Because... That's what he's called his people to, God has called his people to, since he had a people. And, starting into today's passage, if and if. Now this if is very important. In this thought pattern here, Peter is saying something, saying something, saying something, and then and if. And there are times in scripture where the word for if can be translated as since. But the ESV translators, I think, chose if instead, and I think they're right. I think they got it right. I think the NIV says since. NIV is the nearly inspired version. So, Amen. There's some good stuff in the NIV, and there's some stuff that I scratch my head at. But anyway, I think the ESV translators got it right. Because the thought pattern of Peter seems to be calling his readers to navigate the thought of whether or not something that he is about to say is true or not. It's not a conclusive statement, but more of an investigative one. can't believe I said that on the first try. Be holy, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Well, that's a mouthful to be sure. So let's dig in a little bit more here. Peter's about to instruct his readers on how they are to conduct themselves later in this verse, which we'll get to in a few minutes. His precursor to that is to evaluate if his readers call on God as Father and if they realize that that same Father is also their judge who will judge every person, emphasis on every according to their deeds. Now that's a pretty big couple of realizations. First, God is your Father, if you're a believer. The second is that God is your judge. God is going to judge, listen, every single person that has ever lived, according to their deeds. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that ain't what we believe. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scriptures alone, the glory of God alone. But we do. If you call God your Father, do you realize He's going to impartially judge you according to your deeds? First, let's start with calling on God as Father. And the first question that I would ask is, do you? Do you call on God as your Father? Because it's the very nature of salvation to be adopted as a child into God's family. A believer's birthright is secured by Jesus' place as the Son of God. We become fellow heirs with Christ in our union with Him. And union with Christ is the very essence of salvation. We are one with Christ and thus we too are children of God. 
And the Apostle John says it this way. I love this passage. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And some versions say lavished upon us. See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That sounds like what Peter said before, right? But we know that when He appears, oh glory, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now that's 12 messages right there. But what I want us to see is that the Father has lavished love upon us so that He could call us His children. So if you're a believer in Jesus, just as God is the Father of Jesus, He is your Father as well. And that's really good news. And if the Father Himself has given His love to us to make us His children, lavish that love on us, so then what should we do? Well, first we should call on God as Father. When Jesus taught His disciples to pray, what did He lead with? Our Father. Okay? So do you call on God as Father? Next, Peter says that God is our Judge. Individually. Not by family, not by clan, not by church, not by denomination. Individually, God will judge you and me impartially. Hmm. Now, let me ask you this question in light of that. Does that comfort you or does it disturb you? I was about to say, I think it should be both. So let me finish Peter's statement here. Does it comfort or disturb you to know that God is going to judge us individually and impartially according to our deeds? You're like, this is not making me happy. This is bothering me a little bit. This is not what you normally say. Stay with us, okay? Well, let's finish Peter's thought in this verse before we fully answer that. Look at the verse again. Let me go back there. I can't see. There we go. Knowing that we're going to be judged according to our deeds. Does it comfort or disturb you to know that God is going to judge us individually and impartially according to our deeds? Look at the verse again and think about it all together in the context of the verse. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Father, judge, impartial deeds. And then the conclusion slash exhortation is to do what in light of that? Celebrate? Rejoice? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. (laughs) The demeanor here is funny. (laughs) Usually people, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now people are going, what? And that is a little jarring, right? So God is your father. Yay! Well, then, your father's going to judge you impartially like everyone else according to your deeds. Oh. It's a little jarring. So, 
Conduct yourselves with fear for the rest of your lives in light of that. Fear. Well, shoot. (laughs) That's very jarring, isn't it? And I think it's supposed to be. I think that's the effect that Peter's going for. Yes, God is our Father and we should rejoice in that. And, not but, and God will judge us individually and impartially according to our deeds. One thought does not cancel out the other. And both are equally important. Thomas Schreiner comments on this thusly. There is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. A confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from doing anything foolish. A genuine fear of judgment hinders believers from going into libertinism. End quote. Listen, you can't call God Father and fail to conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Your father is your judge, and your judge is impartial. And your father and your judge is going to judge you individually according to your deeds. And he ain't playing church. So live like you know that. So you may be thinking, so we're saved by our deeds? That's not what I said. But you will be judged according to your deeds. The judgment of the judge will be based on your deeds. Not heaven or hell. That's by grace through faith. But what's going on in heaven and in hell is according to your deeds. We'll make more sense of this later. But let's take a minute to go back to that word exile for a minute. What does Peter mean by referring to his reader's exile? The word exile means dwelling in a strange land. Dwelling in a land that is one that the person was not born a citizen of. Where's Arlene? Where's my Canadian? There she is. Thank you very much. Arlene was born in Canada. She ain't from here, y'all. But she lives here. And she's married to somebody who was born up the road here just a bit, just a far piece. And so she is as much American as she is Canadian now, but, but she was born in Canada. An exile dwells in a strange land, dwelling in a land that is not the one they were born a citizen of. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, if I can find that. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Not only do we get adopted into God's family at salvation, but we also get a new home when we're born again. Our home, literally, is in heaven now. So while we are here on earth, we are exiles, sojourning away from the land of our citizenship. That's why Peter refers to the lives of believers as an exile. 
And again, we'll come back to some of this in application, but we've got to press on into the next verses, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, we were just seeing that we are to walk in fear in relation to our father and judge, and here we see some pretty solid ground we are to walk upon. Why and how can we conduct ourselves that way? Knowing, being sure and convinced that you were ransomed. And let's, let, let's throw up a big red stop sign there. Let's stop at the word ransomed because this is really the heart of this passage. What does it mean to be ransomed? The Greek word is lutroo. Lutroo, emphasis on tro. And it means to release on receipt of ransom, to redeem, liberate by payment of ransom, to liberate, to cause to be released from oneself by payment of a ransom, to redeem, to deliver from evils of every kind, internal and external. Woo, woo, woo. It's redemption. To be ransomed is to be redeemed. And we talked about this truth and concept a lot when we went back through Ruth and the rights of redemption and who could redeem who and what does redemption look like in real life. We sang about it a lot this morning. And ransom slash redemption is a huge deal in our story and our walk with the omnipotent God and judge of the universe. Believer in Christ, you have been redeemed. You've been ransomed. Our sins have been paid for, atoned for. Our ransom has been paid. And Peter says we have been ransomed or bought back from what? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. As those who are born into sin in a fleshly body, we are helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves. And the ways of those lost in sin are sinful ways, and the wages of sin is death. Those ways are futile. They're vain, pointless, purposeless. Last week our passage called it the passions of our former ignorance. But those who are in Christ, in union with Him, have been baptized into Christ, have been ransomed from those futile ways. We have been purchased and given a purpose. We were headed down a dead-end road, literally. But God saved us and placed us on the narrow way to eternal life with Him. And how did that happen? How did that happen? What price was paid to bring this ransom about? Peter says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. This was not a financial transaction. We saw Peter earlier in the chapter put our purified faith at a higher preciousness level than pure gold. And here, he puts our ransom above that level as well. And what was the payment that is more precious than the precious metals of this world? But with the precious blood of Christ. Oh, church, do not sleep on this statement, which is so cliche to us that we don't really think about it anymore. You were ransomed. If you are a believer, your sins were paid for, atoned for by the blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Christ. Back when 
Passion of the Christ was out at the movie theater. I took my dad to watch it. And you don't say much during or after that movie. It just kind of kicks you in the gut from the beginning, and you can't breathe for like six hours. Um, and again, is it a perfect representation? No. Uh, are there doctrinal issues? Yes. But it's powerful. And I remember we walked out of that theater, <laughs> and all that my dad kept saying was, Oh, that precious blood. Oh, that precious blood. And my dad's the kind of person that repeats things. So he must have said it 20 times on the way home. That's all he would say. Oh, that precious blood. And oh, that we would have a reverence and a recognition and a joy in the thought, listen to me, believer, that God loved you so much. He sent His Son to shed His blood for your forgiveness from your sins. Oh, we're so numb to that. Oh, God help us. Do we see the preciousness of the blood of Christ? See, here's the deal. God required a payment for sins. Hebrews 9, 18-22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything... Is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Think of the first Passover. What was the sign that would signal the death angel to not take the firstborn of a household? It was the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. And then all through the Old Testament, we see sacrifices of bulls, goats, calves, birds, and various animals being offered as sacrifices for the sins of, the, of God's people. The animals were dying and spilling their blood so that the people could at least claim a good conscience toward God. I gave the sacrifice that you require for the payment of the penalty of my sins. But let's go back to Hebrews for a second, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Oh, there's a big word about to come up. But... In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, God made a way to pay the penalty for the sins of His people. Bulls and goats' blood couldn't do it, so what did He do? He sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to spill His blood, His real blood, in order to atone for the wrongs done by His people. Jesus was beaten, flogged, crucified, and speared, and spilled His literal blood to stay the fury of God against the sins of His people. We celebrate it here every week as we come to the table and remember and proclaim the shedding of that blood and the breaking of His body. And the great, fantastic, wonderful 
amazing news is that God accepted that blood as sufficient for the payment of every sin of every person that he had foreknown in eternity past. God looked and said, accepted. Account is paid in full. Sins are forgiven. Because Jesus shed his blood and God said, I require blood to forgive sins. I'll shed my own blood through my own son. And that precious blood will pay the penalty for the sins of my people. One more look at Hebrews 10 here, verses 12 to 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering. Oh my God, thank you. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to read that again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow! Gold and silver couldn't do that. But the precious blood of Christ did that. The precious blood of Christ did that. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Peter says, but while showing clearly that the precious blood of Jesus is far superior to gold, silver, or any blood from any animal, whether that animal was pure, without blemish or spot or whatever, the precious blood of Jesus is far superior. And listen, Christian, that is what has ransomed you. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon the earth. And that blood speaks righteousness for me. And that blood stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your precious blood. Yeah, we would do well to think about that for a long time. And consistently. And Peter just can't move on without thinking and talking about Jesus more. He talked about his blood, but he's going to talk about Jesus more in verse 20. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And we should dot, dot, dot that because that's not a full thought, but we're going to stop there right now. So yeah, Peter goes on with some descriptors of this Jesus who shed his precious blood for the ransom of his precious people. It's the blood that makes you precious. It's the obedience of Christ that makes you precious. Peter says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. We would do well to sit and soak there a little while too. It is a very simple, profound, and powerful statement. Jesus, spotless, perfect Lamb of God, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, we've spoken a few times of this before, this foreknown deal, but our passage today necessitates us covering it again, which I don't mind to do at all. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word, for, the word foreknown here is defined as, quote, to be or become friendly or acquainted with someone in a familiar way ahead of time or before meeting implying an exclusivity of choice relative to those not befriended. 
Now that's, that can be mix up your mind a little bit. What it basically means is that there was a choice made beforehand who would be known in a friendly way. That's what foreknown means. It does not mean God knew everything that would happen before it happened, even though He does. That's not what this is talking about. The know here in foreknown is the same word that means intimate knowing. Adam knew his wife. That doesn't mean he's like, hey, I know you, you're Eve. It means they were intimate. There was a connection there that was not shared with anybody else. That's the kind of known that we're talking about. It's a pre-choice. It's predestination. And we've spoken of it before regarding the elect, those foreknown before the foundation of the world by God, those whom God set His love on and deemed them His friends before the foundation of the world. And that's great news, but here in 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus is foreknown. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now what does that mean? Well, it turns out that those who were to be saved and how they would be saved were both foreknown. Jesus was foreknown, specially chosen by God the Father to be the only begotten Son of God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, the Godhead determined that the Son of God, God the Son, who would be the member of the Trinitarian God who would put on human flesh and suffer and bleed and die for the sins of His people. Jesus was the foreknown one who would accomplish all this. Jesus was foreknown by God and the plan to use His blood to redeem His people was set forth in eternity past. And this is tremendous news. This whole deal, our redemption, the means, the plan, the Savior Himself, it was all foreknown before the foundation of the world. God is not reacting to people's deeds in salvation. Well, they sinned, I better do something now. But... Peter says, Jesus, our Redeemer, wasn't just some ethereal thought that floated around in nether space forever. Oh, a Redeemer, what a beautiful thought. No, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Dot, dot, dot. Jesus and His perfect plan came into time and space and was made Manifest was made manifest as one Greek word, phanero, and it means to make manifest or visible or known what has been hidden or unknown. To manifest, whether by words or deeds or in any other way, to make actual and visible, realized. Jesus wasn't visible to Old Testament saints. Maybe there was a theophany here and there. Maybe the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate Christ. But generally... The Old Testament saints didn't see Jesus other than a blip on the prophetic radar. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. This is what he'll look like. He's coming, he's coming. But as Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, there's that word, those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The foreknowledge, the plan of God from eternity past was not to stay hidden, secret, and unknowable, 
The plan was to be here in a real body, in time, to be heard, seen, felt, smelled, and clearly understood. The Apostle John says it this way in his incredible opening to his first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made, there's this word again, manifest. And we have seen it, John says, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And that was God's plan for you. Peter and John are on the same wavelength here, aren't they? It's like they spent time around the same person or something. Peter says, this is for you. And John says, there in verses 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too, not the band, but you as well, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. For you, Peter says. And then he goes on to say this in his last verse of our passage today. Who, you, who, you, who, You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. (laughs) This verse is jam-packed with enough theology to carry us into the next decade, literally. So you, at the end of the last verse, who are you? You who through him. Now who is him? It's Jesus who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for you. You who through him are believers in God. No, yes, get, get a hold of this. You who through him are believers in God. Don't pass that by too quickly. You would not, you could not believe in God if it had not been for Jesus. Jesus says himself in John fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to the Father except through him. Listen, there's a whole lot of liberal theology out there that says that the ministry of Jesus wasn't important. Now that sounds ludicrous. And it is ludicrous. But listen, without Jesus, without the Christ, there is no Christianity. You could not know God outside of Jesus. That's God's plan. God's plan was to record everything in a book, yes. But that book is all about Him. Even the Old Testament is about Him. Jesus said, all that stuff, Paul says to the Corinthians, all that was written back there was written so that we might know Him, to explain Him to us for our purposes so that we might know Him. You cannot know God except through Jesus. And Jesus came for our sakes so that we might believe in God and know God and glorify God. And what Jesus did was Jesus revealed him perfectly. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The invisible God who can't be seen. Jesus made him manifest. And Jesus also completed the work that Jesus was sent to do. And God verified that that God was pleased with what Jesus did. How did he verify it? Peter says that God who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory. 
Paul, in his opening to Romans, says it this way, Romans 1, 1 1-4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, we just talked about that, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, God raised him from the dead... And gave Jesus glory. After Jesus' resurrection, he stuck around earth for a while and showed himself to be definitively alive to over 500 people. For those doubting Christianity, where is the body of Jesus? We've said it a hundred times. 500 people at that time verified, I saw the man alive who I saw dead on the cross. The resurrection is the definitive proof of the deity and the completion of the work of Jesus as God in the flesh. God attested to it by raising him from the dead. And then as the scriptures record, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father in the highest place possible. That's glory, y'all. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's glory. And God did all of this. Why? Peter says, so that your faith and your hope is in Yourself. So that your hope and your faith are in your deeds. But we're going to be judged according to our deeds. Yeah? That's not what your faith and your hope are in. Your faith and your hope are in the person of God doing what only God could do to ransom you and redeem you through the faithful witness of the blood of Jesus Christ who is and was God in the flesh, whose body was torn, whose blood was poured out so that your sins could be forgiven if you'll place your faith and your hope in Him. That's how we get saved. And our faith and our hope of being saved is in God, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Well, are we going to be judged according to our deeds or not? I'll get back to that in a minute, okay? Stay with me. Wayne Grudem sums all this up so well from 14 through 21. I'm going to read his little two or three sentence paragraph here. After telling his readers to live holy lives in verses 14 to 16 and to fear God's discipline and displeasure if they disobey in verse 17, for God redeemed them from sin at a very great cost, verses 18 to 19, he concludes by reminding them that the God whom they are to fear as judge is also the God whom they trust as Savior. He planned their redemption in the councils of eternity. He sent forth His Son for their sake. He is the one whom they even now depend on. He raised Christ from the dead and glorified Him. And thus He is the one in whom they place all their trust and hope. The God whom Christians fear is also the God whom they trust forever. The God who has planned and done for them only good from all eternity. End of quote. I'm going to try to remember to post that paragraph on the Facebook page later. It'd be good to sit and think about that as well. What a passage. This passage is so thick and rich, I've got five application points that I do not apologize for. So as we turn our attention to application, we've got five R's. Roles... R-O-L-E-S, 
Rolls. R-O-L-L-S. They're not all five rolls, by the way. <laughs> Just those two. That would be awesome if I could pull that off, but I don't Rolls, Rolls, Rolls Royce, Rolls, Rolls. Ransomed, resurrection, and respond. Rolls with an E, Rolls with an L. Ransomed, resurrection, and respond. Mm. Rolls, rolls, ransomed, resurrection, respond. First is rolls, R-O-L-E-S. The rolls of God in the universe, in the, li- in the lives of unbelievers, in the lives of believers. What roles does God play? Well, of course, they're myriad. But our passage today says that if you're a believer, one role of God is your father. And that's really good news. To be adopted into the family of God, to be called the children of God, and for those children to call upon Him as their father. That is a comfort, that is a joy, that is an honor and a privilege that we should not treat lightly. And we should think about a lot and praise our father for. Father, thank you. For being my father. Now, he also said in our passage today that that same God has a role as a judge for every individual who has ever and who will ever live. God is the judge of every individual. We need to thank Him for that. We need to worship Him for that. And if you're not a believer, you need to tremble at the truth of that. Because a holy God is going to be your judge. And as a believer, we need to tremble at that. Because a holy God is going to impartially judge you according to your deeds. We also saw that he had a role as Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus literally means. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's the only three roles that we're going to look at for God today, and there are many others. But how do we worship God for the different roles that he plays in our lives? I love this. Do I not? I do have it. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, What do you think fear and trembling means? It means fear and trembling. Profound, I know, right? You're welcome for that research. Is it right to fear God? Well, the whole Bible says that's the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all starts. Let me ask you this question. 
Anybody here afraid of their dad? Man's 78, and I don't want to mess with him. I don't want to cross him. Do I know that my father loves me? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Can both be true? Absolutely. God saved me. God saved me. Rejoice in that. Absolutely. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because the judge is going to judge you impartially. Your salvation is secure. We'll get to that in a second. But how am I conducting myself? I should conduct myself in fear of a father who, yes, loves me, but absolutely, positively will discipline the hell out of me. Because he loves me. Ask David, King David, what it's like to hide your sin from a holy God. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Look, I don't want to serve a God that does that to people. Well, then you need to get a different Bible and a different God because this is how God disciplines His people. I am terrified of the discipline of God. There have been times in my life where I thought about, well, I could sin. Nobody would ever know it. And I thought, and God would get me. God had put His hand heavy upon me. And I don't want that because I'm miserable. And then i got to come out and tell everybody anyway because i got to confess it and i got to make it right. And He'll keep His hand heavy upon me until I do that. There is no such thing as private sin. And your judge knows that. There's a friendship and a fear to this. And I think we're so heavy on the friendship we forget the fear. And Philippians, the same book where he talked about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. I can rejoice in the Lord and I can work out my salvation with fear and trembling because I see the dual and myriad roles of the Father God in my life. And that's a good thing. The fear of the Lord leads me to rejoice in the Lord and His salvation and the coming judgment. And I tread with fear and rejoice with trembling through my sojourn here on earth. Don't forget that. God has more roles than just your father. And thank God he has more roles than just your judge. He's also your savior. So roles. Now, second application point is roles. (laughs) R-O-L-L-S. You are going to be judged according to your deeds. Now let's get back to that. I did not say your salvation rests on your deeds. Nowhere does the scripture teach that. We are saved by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's our salvation. And in light of that salvation, we are are to conduct ourselves with fear being holy in all of our conduct. Because one day the roles are going to be taken in heaven. And each man is written down and will be judged according to his deeds. His rewards and or his punishments will be according to his deeds. Stay with me here. 1 Corinthians 3, 13-15. Each one's work 
will become manifest. There's that word. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, and the foundation is Christ, by the way, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Note that. But only as through fire. Romans 3. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, rolls, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. See, there's a book of life. And those who are saved, their names are recorded in the book of life by the grace of God Himself through the finished work of Christ. Name is in the book. The book that was written before the foundation of the world, by the way. That's God's doing. That's your salvation. And then one day, everybody will stand in front of God individually and they will be judged according to the deeds that they have done in the body. Now listen, believer, all the sins are taken out of the way. There are no sins recorded in that book for believers. That's worth celebrating. And, not but, and every good deed that the Holy Spirit worked through those believers is written in a book that says these are the good works that were done through you and you will be rewarded for them in heaven for eternity. Paul says some people will come through and they'll be saved, but their work will be burned up. They didn't get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. I hate that. Barely made it, brother. Come on in. You're naked and destitute for the rest of eternity, but come on in. That's not the mindset here. They're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They rejoice and give praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for forgiving their sins and making them whole and ransoming them. Yes, 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 yes. And some people will get rewards that other people won't. How's God going to do that in heaven and it be fair? That's up to God. So I should conduct myself with fear, knowing that my deeds are going to be rewarded. And if you're not in Christ, guess what deeds get judged? Every single one of them as sin. According to what they had done. When the roll is called up yonder, it's the finished work of Christ that determines who goes to heaven and who doesn't but it's the deeds of individuals that will determine the rewards or the punishments. New Testament's clear about that. So what should we do? Know that, hey, I'm going to give an account one day. Not for my righteousness. My righteousness is Christ. I've been ransomed. I've been redeemed. But for the deeds that I've done in the body from the time that God saved me until I see Him face to face. So we should conduct ourselves with fear and look to do the good deeds that God wants to empower us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Don't want to over-explain that. So rolls, rolls, now ransom. Oh, I want to spend 20 minutes here, but I've got three. Jesus, believer, paid your ransom. As those who are united with Christ, we are redeemed. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. 
He, was de- he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, we need to remember that every day. Romans 3, 23-26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's how you're saved. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, now, for you, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's your redemption. Worship God for redeeming us, for ransoming us. I will glory in my Redeemer. My worth is not in what I own. Praise God for the ransom that was paid through the precious blood of Christ. I've got to go on. Now, two more. Rolls, rolls, ransom, resurrection. Listen, this is the key. The resurrection of Christ is the key. The key to your living and obeying. Also the key to believing for salvation. Romans 8, 9-11. You, however, believer, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The only way that you can obey the commands and the demands of a holy God is through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Given to you by the very Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now Lord, I would be yours alone. And live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. It has to come from the very spirit of the resurrected Christ who now lives within us. It is not a set of laws and rules and do's and don'ts and I better be good and have my quiet time and testify enough and memorize enough scripture and don't drink or chew or run with those who do and I can't wear this or can't wear that. It's none of that. It's the power of the omnipotent God working in and through you to bring about His will and to do what only He can do in and through you. It's through the resurrection power of the resurrected Christ, the resurrection power of the Spirit that raised the resurrected Christ from the dead that now dwells in you. That's the key to obedience. That's the key to doing good deeds. That's the key to knowing that I'm going to stand before God and He's going to judge me according to my deeds, the deeds that He did through me in the power that only He has. It's not drawing yourself up by your bootstraps and trying harder to do better. It's relying on the perfect power of the omnipotent God to live in and through you. Those are the deeds that will be rewarded in eternity for the believer. You say, well, I'm not a believer. Well, the resurrection's the key there too. 
1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 17. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. But, the narrator says... Christ indeed has been raised. And placing your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is your only hope of salvation. To pay the penalty for your sins, to adopt you into the family of God, and to give you a new home in heaven so that you can spend the rest of your time here on earth as an exile in fear of that holy God, knowing that He is your Father and your Savior. So lastly, how will you respond Rolls, rolls, ransom, resurrection, and finally respond. Every individual person hearing this message in this building at the sound of my voice, however that works, every individual is accountable for how they will respond to what God has said and done in His Word. To what God has done through the finished work of Christ. Through what God is doing through the through the conviction and the power, raising power of the Holy Spirit of God who does not stand at the door and knock, but who gives new life so that you can respond to Him. How will you respond to who God is, what God has done? How will you respond to your coming judgment, the ransoming work of Jesus and His resurrection power? That's what you're responsible for today and every day. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How will you respond? You need to settle that between you and God. I can't do that for you. Your mom and your dad can't do that for you. Your wife, your husband, your kids... They can't do that for you. How will you respond to the work that God has done for you, in you, through you, to save you, redeem you, and ransom you? Let's pray. Father, it is in hope that we have been saved. Hope in you, so that our faith and our hope are in God. Help us to be those, God, who respond to you and your love and your power and your holiness and your coming judgment in a way that honors and glorifies you for our good and for the good of those around us. We have no hope apart from you. If we are believers, we have placed our faith in Christ and his work, and we do our deeds in hope that we will be rewarded for them one day for your glory and for our good. And if there be those who are not believers that hear this message, God, their only hope to escape the coming judgment, the coming wrath upon them for their sins, is to place their faith in the finished work of Jesus. To trust that the resurrection power that raised Him from the dead will give life to their mortal bodies so that they can call You Father. Show us our need, believer and unbeliever. And show us your great ability to meet that need and to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could think or ask. And again, God, may it be for you and your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction.
now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.